0: Hey, Rockbridge, my name is Matt. I want to welcome all of you at all six of our physical locations and those of you joining us from our online connections, whether you're on YouTube or Rockbridge Online. Thank you so much for joining us. We're in a message series called Live No Lies that we kicked off around the Easter season. And we said something about all of us that's kind of remarkable. It's crazy, but it's part of who we are and and part of a challenge that we face that we have the capacity to believe something. Something is true, yet live a lie that goes against the truth that we say we believe. And we've been just walking through that and dissecting that thought and that truth for the last several weeks. Well, today we're going to talk about something that I think all of us are facing or have faced, and it's at like an all-time high. And, and if you had to just sort of describe some of the things that are characteristic of the age that we live in or maybe the mood of the age that we live in, I think you would land upon one of these four words, that there's just a high degree of uncertainty. COVID caused some of that. Political climate caused some of that. War caused some of that. Gas prices caused some of that. Personally, you may be dealing with something that causes uncertainty. And a very close cousin of uncertainty is just a a doubt, a, a doubt about what matters, a doubt about why I'm here, Doubts about God, doubts about life, doubts about the future, skepticism, where we just are skeptical, especially of people or organizations of of authority. I mean, we're just the infamous they, right? And and then we're just sort of suspicious. We're just suspicious. And the challenge for us as believers or those of you who are thinking about uh, becoming a Christ follower or a believer is these four things are actually a catalyst for deception. They're a catalyst for us to live lies. And and it sort of goes like this. Uncertainty gives birth to speculation, which we're warned against doing in Scripture, and speculation gives birth to deception, and then we're living a lie. And and a simple, silly analogy. Have you ever sent a text? And and all of us have sort of a text response time, right? Like, we all think in our minds, hey, this is when the person should respond to my text. I mean, some of us are like Insta-texters, right? I mean, if you get a text and you've sent something back within about 7.2 nanoseconds. Some of us are a little bit slower, but whatever your text time gap is, if you don't get a response, you start speculating. Man, they're just ignoring my text. Or, what's wrong? I wonder if anything happened to them. And your mind just goes in that direction. The next thing you know, you know, maybe you bump into them and you're like, hey, did you not get my text? What, are you mad at me? And they're like, oh, no, I overlooked it. Or, oh, I've been busy. Or, oh, I was at the gym and I just missed. But next thing you know, we've gone down this path. And that's like a small example though that happens with the climate that we live in and how we're just dealing with such uncertainty, skepticism, and doubt. But God has designed you and I with a mind and with a body and with a soul that operates better upon this framework with some certainty and assurance, conviction that we stand upon as a firm foundation. And I'll just share this with you, okay? Okay our soul is not designed to live in this dynamic. Our soul is not designed to operate from this dominant paradigm of our culture of our society. So so if you're living in this, that's going to contribute to stress or to fear or to worry or to anxiety or to insecurity or to the desire to be in control whether that's through anger or manipulation or whatever. So your soul is not designed for this. This is not the path God wants you to be on. He created us, right? Certainty and assurance. The Lord saw that it was good. The Lord blessed them and And that was to be the foundation for Adam and Eve to go forth and be who God created them to be and do what God called them to do. And that's all messed up, right? Now, I want us all to remember something, and especially those of you who kind of call yourself Christians. You can believe in God, but still not believe God in some part of your life or our lives. I can believe God exists, but I don't believe what God says about marriage, I can believe in God, but I don't believe what God says about how I ought to go approach and view my job or view my view work or view, or, or view raising kids or view whatever. And, and so it's in this second half of this statement that we're dealing with. It's doubt, skepticism, uncertainty about believing God in certain aspects of our lives. So here's the question that we're going to wrestle with. What do we do with doubt and uncertainty? Because we're going to deal with it we're going to face it. It's it's sort of our nature. It's our culture. It's our society. What do we do with it? And, and listen, for those of you that kind of grew up in church and here was the, anytime you had a question that kind of was a crazy question or a little bit out of bounds, somebody looked you in the eye and said, oh, well, it's just because the Bible said so. That's not the kind of answer I'm going to give you this weekend at Rockbridge Community Church. I, I think that answer has some merit because I believe in the authority and the truth of the Word of God. And we'll see that here as we work through this text, this Bible text in just a minute. But just say to someone, oh, because the Bible says so, that's not what we're asking to do. And we're going to see that's not what Jesus did or his approach. But what do we do with doubt and uncertainty? Because here's what I know. Doubt and uncertainty will do something to you and to me if we don't do something with it. And oftentimes, it's doubt and uncertainty that take us away from God, away from marriage and relationship health, it's doubt and uncertainty that cause us not to trust, that cause us not to risk, that cause us not to sacrifice. So we need to know what do I do with doubt and uncertainty? And the ultimate goal is that we have a conviction that is greater than the uncertainty we face. Now, full disclosure, developing this type of conviction is a process. Like you can type in the chat if you're on online connections, I'm a work in progress, right? And we can all say amen. It's a process. It's something we, it's not instantaneous because you're going to face doubt and uncertainty until Jesus comes back. So we got to know how to deal with it in a healthy biblical process so it doesn't take us down paths we're not designed, destined to go. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn them on or open them up. We're going to be in John's Gospel, chapter 20, and actually see someone who walked with Jesus. His name was Thomas, who dealt with this doubt and conviction, this doubt and uncertainty, and the process that he went through. So if you have your Bibles, we'll start in chapter 20, verse 24. Here it is. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came so Jesus has all these appearances that he's alive after the after he died and res, was resurrected he appears to a bunch of people so in, in one of his appearances it seems like he appeared to 10 or 11 or, or uh, some group of his disciples but Thomas was absent so the other disciples told him we have seen the Lord now I just want us to see this we'll circle back to it they give Thomas a word. They share the truth with Thomas. We know this is true because we have scriptural evidence, we have uh, historical evidence, and those of us who are born again, we have the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit telling us that Jesus is alive. So Thomas gets this word from the disciples, and then here's his response. But he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands And put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side. Here it is. I will not believe. The greatest truth ever. I will not believe. And if we're honest, there's a little bit of Thomas in all of us. Maybe, maybe a lot of Thomas. But what he's done in this statement is indicative of something we all do, which is we put unbelief on the throne. And so now, instead of being driven by trust and confidence and assurance and conviction, we're driven by the unbelief which feeds insecurity, which feeds skepticism, which feeds caution, which feeds not a life of fullness walking by faith in Jesus Christ, but a life that is on a different path that takes us to a different destination. And this is very insightful that unbelief ultimately is the root of all sin and why we miss God's best. That if you peel back any sin, you can take any sin, greed, lust, pride, and if you just keep peeling it back and get to the root of it, there's just something you just don't believe what God has said, like Thomas didn't believe what the disciples had said. It's the root of all sin, and I'll give you a hint. We won't go into this in this message, but if you're going to deal with this in your life, and if you feel like you keep missing this in your life, you've got to find out where this is present in your life. Now, Again, we're all a work in progress, and unbelief is a constant battle. In fact, when you wake up in the morning, the tendency is going to believe or to not believe that God is with you or God is for you. You're going to wake up, oh my goodness, I've got to do this today, and I'm worried, I'm stressed, and I'm afraid. Oh my goodness, this is what I've faced today. Oh my, and so it's just constant battle, and it's going to be, this doubt and uncertainty is going to be with us till Jesus comes back, so we have to know how to deal with it. And then Another thing that's very, very important, and, and I want everybody to kind of lean in with me, especially like if you'd say, Man, I got a good life, I've always believed in God, or you're a teenager or, 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 or something, or a college student. Unbelief can be hidden in us and unknown until something happens to us. That something could be a tragedy that something could be the appearance of an idol that suddenly seems more attractive to you than God or how you were raised. So something happens to us, and and it's not like we suddenly become unbelievers or become unbelievers in that area. It's just revelation that, hey, our belief in God and our belief about what God says in this area is somewhat less than 100%. And let me show you this in Thomas's life. A few chapters earlier, there's a remarkable miracle that Jesus is going to go raise Lazarus from the dead. I want you to look at Thomas's belief at this point. Jesus told them Lazarus is dead, so for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. So that's the purpose of the death and then the subsequent resurrection of Lazarus. And then Thomas, our doubting Thomas, in chapter 20, in chapter 11, who's he's called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, "Let us go that we may die with Jesus." I'm willing to give my life for Jesus. And then after the resurrection, which is the greatest miracle, the greatest sign, and the greatest evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, Thomas is like, I won't believe in less. And so, you know, all of us just have these areas where that that give us. Trouble when it comes to doubt and uncertainty, and I'll just give you big four categories, and, and, and they can all fit in any probably any area of doubt can fit into one of these big four. Questions we cannot answer, especially in the information age where we where we sort of believe that we should know the answer to everything, right? Questions that we can't answer, uh, situations that seem unfair and or unmet expectations, like when 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 it just it shouldn't be this way, and you get doubting or skeptical. Hurts that we can't resolve. Hurts that we can't resolve. They're still with us in the form of bitterness or anger or regret or or we just feel stuck, right? Temptations that just seem worth considering. Temptations that, oh, that doesn't seem so bad or maybe that sounds pretty good. So these are the big four Categories that give birth to skepticism and doubt that then fuel speculation that then make us prone to deception and enthroning unbelief let's go back and join Thomas on his process right of, of dealing with his doubt. so eight days later so he's told him i'm not going to believe unless I see Jesus eight days later, about a week week, week and some change. His disciples were again inside the house. And Thomas was with them. Now, I love this because it's a little bit of a, I'm gonna take a little bit of a detour, but this is so significant and so important for us as a church at Rockbridge, for for maybe even where you are in your own journey. Thomas is not a believer, but he's hanging out with believers. You see it? With them. It is okay to belong before you believe. It is okay to be around Christ followers with your doubts, with your questions, with your curiosities, with your, with your concerns. It is okay because by God's providence and design, belonging, being friends with Christ followers can help believing. So I say this if you're here today and you're like you feel more like Thomas than maybe the other disciples, you are welcome here. You are welcome to ask questions. You can email me and I will answer them or I will find some way to answer them, right? You can join some small group and a Bible study and just listen to the conversation. We've got somebody leading an online Zoom Bible study, and we've had people participate that, in that, who are atheists, who don't believe everything Christians believe. And sometimes I I had lunch with this guy who leads this. It was fascinating as he was describing people just listening to how believers talk. It's okay. Now, let me turn it, flip it. Let me talk to Christians. You need to have a group of friends who do not go to church and who do not know Jesus. You need to be around them. You need to figure out, join a club, join a team, coach, find out your kids' friends, and create some belonging that might help other people with believing. That's the sidebar, but that's the vision of Rockbridge Community Church. 20 years ago, we didn't start this church for the already convinced. We started this church for the disconnected from Jesus Christ. And we see that connecting to believers might facilitate connecting to Jesus Christ. And here comes Jesus, back to the story. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and says, peace be with you. So he comes, and again, another post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, and he's drawn to engage Thomas. He says to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side don't be faithless. And here it is, believe, Thomas. You are not designed, you are not destined to be a person who has enthroned unbelief and is being driven by doubt or suspicion or skepticism or outright unbelief. You, that's not my will for you. And so the beautiful thing about our King Jesus, about our Lord and Savior, is he sees uncertainty and doubt as an opportunity for faith more than an obstacle to it. And I love that about Jesus. He's not offended. He doesn't run away. He engages. Why? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And as long as you are seeking honest answers from a genuine spot, Jesus is inviting you to consider him and to consider truth and to consider belief. So that's so powerful and that's so important. But you got to know God's goal. you got to know God's goal. He's going to call us to believe. He's not going to coddle unbelief. And so God works on us and God works in us for 100% trust, which will often require repentance. Because repentance is saying, I trusted myself. I trusted culture. I trusted money. I was moving down this path Jesus was not the Lord of me in this decision, in this season, in this area of my life. I had enthroned unbelief that Jesus was worthy to be my Lord in this area or that Jesus didn't know what was best or I doubted God's authority or I doubted God's wisdom or I doubted something about God. I am repenting and I am coming back in their direction toward 100% trust. If you are ever asking yourself, hey, I don't know, is God working on me? Is God working in me? What's God doing in me? It's going to be something that has to do with this, because when you fully trust Jesus Christ, full-fledged surrender, not just believing in him, but believing what he says enough to do what he says, that's the life that brings glory to God. That's the life that's on the path to full and abundant life that Jesus promised. But Jesus is going to always be inviting us to believe. All right. Now, there's kind of something in this story that's so amazing, and it kind of raises a question, but it has to do with what we're talking about. And so let's go there. Here's the question, okay? Why are Jesus' wounds still visible? Now, I'm I'm not going to answer it yet, But this hit. I I was reading some commentary, reading some things about by a a pastor, J.D. Greer, and why are his wounds still visible? Because let's be honest, right? We talk about getting a glorified body, right? Where whatever's wrong with our bodies on earth gets fixed, you know, in the ultimate. And and certainly, God the Father, no big deal, could have just made those scars go away, those wounds heal, right? But But why are his wounds still visible? Let's hold that thought. So Thomas has this experience with the visible wounds of Jesus, and then he responds to him, my Lord and my God. Now this is a statement of faith. This is a statement of trust. This is a statement of belief. This is a statement of surrender. This is a statement of, I am I have arrived. This is a statement of a born-again, I am going to follow Jesus. Not just he is Lord, but he is my Lord. Not just he is God, I believe in God, he's my God, and I am giving myself to him. Okay? So, there's a statement of fact, Jesus is Lord. There's a statement of faith, Jesus is my Lord. Because... You can believe this fact that's established by Christmas and Easter, Jesus is Lord. You can believe that he, God, exists. And if God exists and he's God, by definition, he's in charge, right? But you still don't have to make him your God or your Lord. This is the faith that, this is the faith that shows up in a life of following Jesus. And so Jesus' wounds go for, from Thomas being a historical fact, eight days before they told him, we've seen the risen Jesus. Now they're a personal reality for Thomas. They're a personal reality for Thomas, and he would never back down from that confession that he's my Lord and he's my God. In, in fact, the rest of Thomas's life, what we know of it is he ends up planting churches in India and being speared to death for professing Jesus is his Lord. But the beautiful thing, is that Thomas shows us how we too can deal with doubt and skepticism about God's wisdom or God's goodness or God's plan or God's love because it is through personal contact with Jesus. That's how we battle uncertainty and belief. When we personally encounter who he is, What he did, what he did for us, this is how we encounter and and combat uncertainty and belief, right? Because it is the wounds of Jesus that are supposed to be in front of us that are convincing and reminding us of His steadfast love. When I see Jesus crucified and I understand that happened in history, but I also understand that it happened for me. I do not I, I, then my doubts about is God good go away? Will God forgive me? They go away. Does God have a plan? Yes, His plan took His son to the cross and his, took His son out of the cross and enthrones His son as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. So uh, doubt just sort of evaporates when I have personal contact with Jesus. And and let me just say this, for all of eternity, we will never outgrow our need to see, to behold, to marvel at the personal wounds wounds of Jesus and how that implicates us, blesses us, and assures us, yes, God is good, yes, God is for me, yes, God is best. I'll show you. Let's go to to heaven, right? We've been with Jesus in this room where He comes through locked doors. Let's go to the throne of heaven, Revelation. This is John who's writing the gospel we're reading from this weekend. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look at. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. We're weeping because what's going to happen? There's uncertainty in John's spirit as he's sort of watching the unfolding of almighty history. He, the elder says the elder say, "Don't weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, that's Jesus, the root of David. So the mighty roaring lion, the root of David, the eternal king of kings has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then he looks, and how does Jesus appear in heaven? To John, the same way he appeared to Thomas on earth. I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne. We keep the wounds of Jesus in front of us because it is the wounds of the slaughtered lamb that remind us we should never, ever doubt the love of God. We should never, ever doubt the plans, purposes, and power of God. We should never doubt God. So we go back. Uncertainty, speculation, deception. Uncertainty, speculation, deception. This is what we face almost daily, right? But when we know that we know through reminding and remembering and being convinced of what Jesus has done for us, then deception can go no further than my deepest conviction. So if I know with a deep conviction that God loves me, God has forgiven me, when the condemnation voice of Satan or society comes upon me, it hits my deepest conviction, which is a firm foundation, and I can say, get behind me, Satan. I believe that I believe that I believe God is for me, God is with me, and God loves me forever. See how that works? When, when someone wants to deceive you about who you really are, you are what people think, you are what happened to you 30 years ago, no. You look at the woundedness of Jesus and you say, I am loved by him. I am defined by him. I am who he says I am. I stand on that foundation. And you move forward because that deception can go no further than my deepest conviction. When you come across a text of Scripture, and you see God calling you to be generous with your money, generous with your possessions, which is really His money and His possessions, but let's hold that. And you have a deception that maybe money can buy happiness, or maybe if you give away too much, who's going to take care of you? And if you give away too much, you might not be as happy as you think you are. That's just unbelief that money makes you happier than God. But then you look upon the woundedness of jesus you have personal contact with the wounds of jesus and like, whoa how can i not trust him because of what he did for me deception can go no further than my deepest conviction the beautiful thing about this story is that you and i are included in it or we're in the mind of jesus As he's going through this interaction with Thomas. We go to verse 29. So powerful, so awesome. Then Jesus told Thomas, Hey, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Blessed. He's talking to us. He's talking about us. He's offering a promise to us. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. How does this happen? What Jesus is saying is, hey, Thomas, when those disciples came to you and told you they had seen me, they gave you a word, and it was word backed by my blood. You should have believed them then. Yeah, Jesus is patient and he works with us in our doubt and he invites us to believe no matter what. But what he's saying is, blessed are those who believe without seeing me, those who come to believe by trusting in his word. As Romans says, so faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Jesus Christ, right? And this word of Jesus Christ is how we come to have personal contact with Jesus and thus battle uncertainty and unbelief. As we receive his word and there's some combination of us receiving his word, believing his word, and the Holy Spirit working on us and in us that we have eyes to see Jesus and appropriate him as my Lord. And my God, just like Thomas. You know, the beautiful thing that Jesus did is he did give us a visual representation that we can have personal contact with. And we call it as Christ followers, the Lord's Supper, where Jesus gives us a way to remind ourselves that he's the slaughtered lamb to remind ourselves that he died for us, that he died instead of us. And when he did that and rose again, it lays to rest the debilitating and enslaving doubt, skepticism, suspicion, and uncertainty that we face and we battle every day. And that's why since this year began, we've wanted as a church once a month besides our first Wednesday service, to take the Lord's Supper. And that's what we're going to do right now. So uh, if you take this, and as we look at this, let's remind ourselves of what this is. The bread symbolizes the broken body of Jesus, the pierced body of Jesus. The cup, the wine, the juice represents the shed blood of Jesus. And those are historical facts but they have personal meaning. And Jesus wants them to be your personal reality so you can confess and profess and proclaim again with confidence and assurance, Jesus is my Lord and my God. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, after he'd given thanks, he took bread and he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. In the same manner, after supper, he took also the cup, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. There's often, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to pray over this. When I say amen, you feel free to observe the Lord's Supper. If you are not a believer in Jesus, I'd ask you just to hold off and ask questions, or maybe today is your first ever communion because now you know what this means. Now you know, and you too are professing, confessing, and proclaiming for the first time, like Thomas, Jesus is my Lord and my God. Rockbridge, let's pray together. God, thank you for everybody here today. I thank you, God, that no one walked in here by accident I thank you, God, that you're a God who walks through closed doors and closed hearts to show people your love as displayed on the cross. God, in our hands we hold physical representation and an illustration of your woundedness for us. God, may these elements remind us, rejuvenate us, refresh us, And where needed, bring us to repentance. So as we take your body and blood today, we confess and proclaim, Jesus, you are my God. Jesus, you are my Lord, my Savior, and my King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Together, let us take the body and the blood of Christ.